All right, let's take our Bibles this morning. Eventually, I'm going to get to Romans uh, chapter 3. This morning, I'm going to start uh, and embark on a preaching series, a series of messages on the doctrines of grace. Maybe uh, this is the first time you've ever heard messages on the doctrines of grace, or maybe you've heard them before, uh, and, but you need to hear them again because we need to be established in these particular doctrines. Like in time past, uh, it has been historically referred to as the five points of Calvinism. It has over time received severe attacks and, that, and has been given a bad name. However, uh, the question that one must raise uh, is this. Is it biblical doctrine? Uh, in other words, can we go to the scripture and make a case? Well, let me tell you at the start that I have held to the doctrines of grace for some time now, but I did not always hold to the doctrines of grace because I realized that to learn the doctrines of grace, you need to get into the word of God And the Word of God needs to change your mind on some things. And after studying the Scriptures and preaching the Word of God all these years, I am more convinced today that they are biblical doctrines. In fact, it is of my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach the doctrines of grace. A man that I've respected over the years who lived uh, at the turn of the century, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who pastored uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England, uh, was a person who strongly held to the doctrines of grace. And he said this, and I quote, we believe in the five points, great points commonly known as Calvinistic. But we do not regard these five points as being barbed shafts which we are to thrust between the ribs of our fellow Christians. We look upon them as five great lamps which help us to irradiate the cross, or rather five bright emanations springing from the glorious covenant of our triune God and illustrating the great doctrine of Jesus Christ crucified. He says that I have, in my own private opinion, that there is no such thing again as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel, Spurgeon said, unless we preach the sovereignty of God and his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which God wrought out upon the cross, nor can I comprehend 
the gospel which allows saints to fall away after they have been called, end quote. That's a tremendous quote by Spurgeon. I agree with all of it. Now, before I look at the text this morning, because we're going to be looking at several of them, uh, there's got to be some historical background that goes before I get there to lay the foundation for these particular points of theology. Now, leading up to the Protestant Reformation, men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, William Tyndale, these men laid the foundation and built a bonfire, which Martin Luther simply lit a match and held it to the wood. It was Luther that sparked the Reformation itself with his posting the 95 Thesis on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31, 19, excuse me, 1517. The result, most of Europe was set ablaze with a revival of the biblical doctrines of grace. Like Luther, before him, Calvin, John Calvin, believed in the sovereignty of God concerning the doctrines of election and predestination, there was nothing in Calvin's writings and sermons that were not first found in Luther's. Both of these men viewed the world through the lens of the Bible, desiring to establish God's people upon biblical principles and biblical doctrine. And as time passed, controversy ensued around these doctrines by a man named Jacob Arminius uh, who really began strong objections to these teachings accepted among the reformers. Arminius uh, studied under a Calvinistic teacher, Theodore Beza, at Geneva and became a professor of theology at the University of Leiden in 1603. Over time his objections became stronger and stronger until it became a prominent issue among the church in Holland. The followers of Arminius, Arminius, uh, known as the Arminians, first drew up their creed of the five articles that they believed and outlined them before the state authorities of Holland in the year 1610 under the name remonstrance, uh, signed by 46 members. Now, when the doctrines or the points that they brought before these authorities were five points. Now, remember that the five points of Arminianism came before the five points of Calvinism. Now, what were those five points of Arminianism? They were, number one, the free will or human ability in regard to salvation, in other words, that God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. That was the first one. The second one was conditional election. In other words, that Christ died for all men, for every man, although only believers are saved. Now, the bottom line to that is The sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, 
is the ultimate cause of salvation. A third point under Arminianism was universal redemption or a general atonement. And that meant that Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure salvation for anyone. A fourth point was the Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. In other words, that this grace may be resisted when the gospel came because man is free and he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes Faith, which is the man's, which is really man's contribution to the whole system. Also, falling from grace would be number five. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. Now, whether this last one, all who are truly regenerate will certainly uh, persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation because not all Arminians held to that. Some believed in eternal security. Now, that was the first five, the five points given at, uh, to the authorities in Holland. And so they met there at what was called the Synod of Dort. Uh, and they, of course, the Calvinists, or those who believed in the doctrines of grace, brought their five points after it was all finished. And they came up with these. And of course, it's by the acrostic tulip is what we remember them by, but maybe it's not the best way to recognize these truths. And the first one would be, of course, Calvinism would say, number one, total depravity. And that means that because of the fall of man, because of the fall, all right, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. And that's the one I want to, want to look at today. Secondly, you would be unconditional election. That God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on God's own sovereign will. In other words, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. A third point would be limited atonement or particular redemption. And that would say that Christ's redeeming worth work was intended to save the elect only and actually secure salvation for them. And Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for his children's salvation. And then fourthly, I would be irresistible grace or efficacious calling of the Spirit and that said that apart from the general call to salvation, which is made to everyone uh, who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect the special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation, a call that cannot be resisted. And then fifthly would be the perseverance of the saints. All who are chosen by God, All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. That once someone is truly, genuinely saved, they cannot lose their salvation. So, the official Calvinistic response emerged at uh, 
the Synod of Dort, which was held, of course, in a town in Holland, uh, which convened the five articles or the objections to Arminianism. The Synod of Dort met from November 13th to May 9th. Met, these guys looked over these doctrines for seven months. They poured over all the scripture that was connected to these things. And so these five points of Arminianism were, of course, put up against, in the end, the five points of Calvinism. Now, this is very, a very important point to make, that the five points of Calvinism were not chosen by Calvinists as a summary of their teaching. In fact, Calvin never, never wrote down his theology under five main points. He didn't do that. Uh, that came, of course, by these men after this synod. And so there was far more uh, to, there, actually, there's far more to the Reformed faith and Reformed theology than these doctrines. These five points were simply a response to the five Arminian objections. The Synod of Dort viewed the Arminian errors as extremely serious after seven months and they thought that it was a flat denial of the free grace of God in salvation, which God was being robbed of his glory. This was viewed as the first step on a synergistic highway leading straight back to Roman Catholicism. Therefore, the Synod of Dort classified the five Arminian doctrines as heretical, it's incredible. They spent seven months and concluded they were heresy. And many preachers of the Dutch Reformational churches holding these ideas were put out of the ministry. Now, knowing something, something of the history and the debate is really helpful, but it is far more important to know that these doctrines are in fact biblical and are at the heart of the Christian faith. They are not mere mis historical novelties, something in which, we, which only theologians or church historians would have an interest in. They should be the interest of every single believer because when you grasp these truths, they in a sense change your whole life, how you look at everything. These are biblical doctrines and they do matter deeply. Now, to ask why these things should be of interest to you, we have to ask this question. Why is it important to understand what is at the heart of our Christian faith? Well, see, where each of us stands on these five doctrines deeply affects our view of God, our view of man, regeneration, salvation, assurance, the nature of the atoning work of Christ, worship, evangelism, missions, and more. Somewhere along the way, for the English-speaking world at least, the five points of Calvinism came to be summarized as, as I said, tulip. But probably today they probably used the acrostic more rupep. And that would be, of course, TULIP would be total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saint. RUPREP would be 
radical corruption, which would equal to, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, that's not changed, particular redemption, effectual calling, and then, of course, the last one's not changed either, perseverance of the saints. So, laying all that out, what is total depravity? That's what I want to look at this morning. Well, another way of saying it, it could be total inability or total corruption. Of course, I am using more of the word radical corruption. It is a biblical doctrine closely linked with the doctrine of original sin as formalized by Augustine. The doctrine understands the Bible to teach that as the consequence of the fall of man, every person born into this world fall into several categories all at the same time. Number one, they are mortally corrupt. Number two, they're enslaved by sin. Number three, they are apart from the grace of God. And number four, they are utterly unable to choose to follow God or choose to turn to Christ in faith or salvation. Now, is then total depravity or radical corruption the same as absolute or utter depravity? Well, the answer to that is no. See, the difference between total depravity and utter and absolute depravity is to be utterly depraved is to be as wicked as one possibly can be. All right? Now, we are not as wicked as we can be. Right? No one is. Hitler, of course, is an extreme example. Hitler was extremely depraved, but he could have been worse than he was, believe it or not. I'm a sinner, yet I could sin more often and more severely than I actually do. You're sinners, and you also can sin more often and more severely than you actually do. So, see, people are not utterly or absolutely depraved. People are totally depraved in the sense that total depravity means that I and everyone else are corrupt in the totality of our being. In other words, because of the fall, my mind has been affected. My will has been affected. My affections have been affected. My desires have been affected. Everything about me and you, because of the fall, has been tainted by sin. And so that means uh, we are radically, radically corrupt. Now, this first point is very important and leads to all the other ones, which I'll not get to the other ones today, but just the first one. That man's depravity is total in at least four senses. And John Piper definitely bring this, brings this out. But look at your Bibles in Romans chapter 3, and here's the first sense that man is radically corrupt that our, our rebellion, and I'm speaking about all of us because we are all children of Adam, right? That our rebellion against God is total. It says in Romans chapter 3, you know the passage well, 
But just look at it again. In verse number 10, it says, as it is written, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. In verse number 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So see, apart from the grace of God, there is no delight in the holiness of God and there is no glad submission to the sovereign authority of God. Radical corruption uh, Several theologians have said that radical is a better word than uh, total depravity because uh, the word radical comes from the Latin word that means root or core. Uh, And so that, in other words, that our problem with sin is rooted in the core of our being or, in other words, in our heart. It permeates our hearts. And it is because... Sin is at our core and not merely at the exterior of our lives that the Bible says this in Romans chapter 3. So the first thing is that our rebellion against God is total. A second thing, Romans chapter 14, verse number 23. Now I'm just going to look at the last part of that verse. You may have missed it and I've missed it. I think when I looked at this passage, what it says here, but the second thing is that um, man's total rebellion uh, in his, in other words, in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. Everything we do is sin. See, there's no part of our being that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words. We do sinful deeds. We have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. We grow old, don't we? Uh, We are going to die uh, because of sin. Um, And so it affects all of us. We can't get out of this. There's no wiggle room here. We're all in the same boat. But notice this passage of Scripture in Romans 14. He's talking about the principles of conscience in this passage of Scripture. But notice what he says here. He says, but, verse uh, Romans 14, 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith. And the last part is really what I'm looking at here. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, if we look at ourselves, and when we think of ourselves, and we said if we did not do this and have faith in God, that would actually be constituted as sin. Well, if you look at that one, you'll say, well, no one one can get away with that one. Because when do we ever do everything in our life with faith in God and trust in God? We don't. And so, therefore, he says simply, what is, whatever is not from faith is sin. And so that means that man in his total rebellion has been affected in every way possible. 
A third thing is that man's inability uh, to submit to God and do good is total. Again, right here in Romans, if you look to Romans chapter 8, verse number 7 through 9, we get, again, this sense that a man's inability, of course, to submit to God and do good is total. And it says in verse number 7, because the mind is set on the, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the Bible is being very clear there that fallen man is so moral, morally blind, he uh, uniformly prefers to choose evil instead of good as do the fallen angels and the fallen demons. So man's inability to submit to God and do good is total. And then fourthly, our rebellion is totally deserving of eternal punishment. Now, of course, I was in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 3, and what does it say there? We were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, nobody can get out of it. Nobody could really genuinely uh, have a good argument that sin has not affected everything in the world. Matter of fact, any place you go that human beings are, you know what you're going to find? Sin. You're going to find corruption. You're going to find all kinds of forms of sin. You're going to find idolatry. You're going to find everything that you find here and you find in your own heart and my own heart because we are sinners and it has affected everything. Now, and that was because of the fall. Now, let me go back for a minute. And just to uh, ask the question, what is original sin? Uh, Original sin is the doctrine which holds that uh, that human nature has been morally and ethically corrupted due to disobedience, the disobedience of mankind's first parents to the real revealed will of God. So in the Bible, the first human transgression of God's command is described as the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden resulting in what theology calls the fall of mankind. Now, the doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into this world is tainted by the fall such that all humanity humanity is ethically debilitated and people are powerless to rehabilitate, rescue, or save themselves unless they're rescued by God himself. So, Now, along the way, historically, there have been three common theologies that viewed the fall in different ways. Like, what what exactly happened at the fall? Was man um, totally rendered dead? Was he just partially wounded and still has capabilities of seeking out and, and responding to God? Or is, is it that they doesn't need any kind of inference from God or uh, interjection from God to respond to God. 
So the doctrine really of original sin uh, is at stake when it comes to the doctrine of radical corruption or total depravity. And so the first theology that dealt with this was Pelagianism. And it really, this is going back to the fourth century. Uh, followers of Pelagius, who was probably born in west, the west of England, he was a monk who was expelled from Britain and then went to Rome about A.D. 405. He was a monk of really great spiritual and intellectual stature. He taught that human beings had ability. He taught that man is qualified for right and wrong action through self-complete or independent inherent capacity that was in them and it was possible for man to actually live a sinless life. And he uses as his uh, argument Abel in the Bible and John the Baptist. But I think one thing he forgot about it. Abel died, right? Did Abel die? And John the Baptist died. So that means, re- that means he forgot and he maybe missed the passage in Romans 5.12 where it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Now that's not just physical death. That's spiritual death. And that's also finally if someone rejects Christ's eternal death, which is the second death mentioned in Revelation. Pelagius also taught uh, on the consequences of Adam's sin that he denied that there is such a thing as original sin. He denied that man inherited Adam's guilt and refused to allow that there were any ill effects as a result of Adam's sin. In other words, Adam's sin did not pass on to other human beings. Uh, so this bottom line for Pelagius was that he had no need of God's help and salvation. Now, of course, that was condemned by the Catholic Church. That was condemned by about everybody because it's unbiblical, it's humanistic, and it's unchristian. But out of that view came what they call a semi-Pelagian view and that would be the Arminian view of the fall, all right? Uh, this is uh, really the second type of theology that today actually permeates a large sec- segment of evangelicalism. And what they say is this, that man cannot be saved apart from the grace of God. That's good. But there is something that man must do even in his still fallen state. In other words, man can cooperate with the grace of God if God will save him or reject God's grace. So they would say, yes, man is fallen. He's a fallen sinner under God's wrath, but did not lose everything in the fall. Some people say, well, they believe that man was just wounded there. He wasn't rendered spiritually dead. He is still has the natural ability to respond to the grace of God and to come to Christ. That is the view that is held by most of the church today. Uh, That's the view that was rendered heretical at the Synod of Dort. But nobody's examining those things today. There's not going to be a Synod. 
to examine those things and throw them out and call them heretical. They're not going to do that today. Uh, so we have to preach on it, right? We have to let people know uh, where we believe. Now, there is a third theology that comes in understanding the fall, and that would be Augustinianism. Uh, and what Augustinianism is, is that man must depend fully on God for salvation and is totally depend, dependent on God's grace, even, even for his initial response to the gospel. So that's what I would hold, because that's what I believe the scripture teaches. Uh, so the question is, can man respond to the gospel in his fallen state. Now, Pelagius would say, yes, absolutely, don't need any help. Semi-Pelagians would say, yes, but need help. They cooperate with God to s for their salvation. All right, that would also be called synergism. You work with God for your salvation. But Augustinian uh, theology would say, no, he's dead. He needs to be made alive and have a spiritual resurrection. And he can't do that on, by himself. He needs God to do that. So, see, there is a biblical basis for this, and that's what I want to look at, a few more passages of Scripture, several more passages of Scripture, and really five areas. And that's meaning this, that these passages that I want you to look at with your own Bibles support this doctrine showing that the fall of mankind affected the whole person, body, mind, will, and spirit. Every part of us is affected by sin, by the fall of man into sin. We can't get away from that. We cannot deny it. What we could do, and that's why when we, when we preach the gospel, until a person understands they're a sinner, and sin means rebellion against God, and they're responsible to the creator, they can't be saved yet, right? But it's the first start. Now, the first thing that I want to look at is how the fall rendered man spiritually dead. Again, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You know this passage well if you've been here. But in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, basically... The first verse, verse number one of Ephesians, where it says simply and clearly in chapter two, in verse number one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So very clearly, verse number one, dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what can we do? If someone is dead, all right, if we do not have the ability to be able to raise them up and resurrect them, resuscitate them, right, bring them to life, then they remain dead. Now, 
I cannot do that to myself. You can't do that to someone else, but God can do it. He can raise the spiritual, spiritually dead. All right, there's another passage, which you don't have to turn there, but again, I mentioned already Romans 5, 12, that uh, because of Adam's sin, death passed, spread to all men, for all have sinned. So death because of sin, and then in Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb, it says. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So there is a spiritual deadness that we have soon as we're born. We're alive when we're born physically, but spiritually we're dead. We have no ability to respond to God in our dead condition. A second thing would be this, is that because of the fall, our minds are darkened and our hearts are corrupt. Our minds are darkened and our hearts are are corrupt. In fact, Genesis chapter 6 already tells us that because it says there, the Lord saw, verse number 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So right there in Genesis, because of the fall, God, of course, brought about the flood, but, of course, even descendants of Noah still retain the effects of the fall, and we retain it even till this day. And then I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7 and verse 21, because we find this truth everywhere, that the mind is darkened and the heart of man is corrupt, because... It says there in Mark 7, verse 21, uh, Mark 7, 21, it says, For within, out of the heart of men, now notice that, from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. So where does our sin come from? It comes from inside of us. It's already there. We're born as sinners because of the fall. Everybody will sin. You know if you have a little toddler right now, you know that little toddler is a sinner because when you tell them to do something, they don't do it, you know? And if they do it once, they won't do it the next time. It was Vody Bachman who had said about uh, babies or toddlers especially, he says that the reason, he says they're really demon, demons in diapers. And he says, and the reason why they're so cute is so you don't kill them. <laughs> and the reason why they're so small is so they don't kill you. Now, that's funny, but it's, there's a lot of truth to it in the sense that a baby uh, and all of us who have raised kids know that one of the jobs of a parent is to find out where your child is naturally bent to sin who are believers and try to steer them away from it <laughs> and, and, and establish righteousness in their heart 
so they'll have a sense or a taste of wanting to do right. And then finally, if they listen to your voice, they will, in God's providence, listen to his voice and, and, and desire to live and serve him. So, uh, but nonetheless, it's already there in his heart, in the, her, her little heart, that they're going to sin. And so that becomes very clear in Scripture. Another passage in Corinthians, you don't need to turn there. It says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him and is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so man doesn't understand what God wants him to do. He, he, somebody opens up the Bible who's, uh, who's just... Uh, no desire for God, but they say, well, I'm going to start reading the Bible. And they look at it and start reading it. They say, I don't understand this stuff. I don't know what, this, what they're talking about here, these, these things. And they, so they don't have the capacity. They can understand narrative and text and stories, but their conclusions are wrong. Where it leads them is wrong. All right? And so that becomes evidence that they are blinded and dead in their sin. And then another passage of Scripture that I'd like you to turn to is Titus chapter 1 and verse number 15. First, second Timothy, and then Titus. Uh, this is a pastoral epistle. And he says in uh, Titus chapter 1, he says in verse number 15, he says, to the pure, to the pure all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And then notice what it says in verse 15, both, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So because of sin, they are not only unclean and unbelieving, but their mind is affected. And yes, their conscience is affected. Every time someone doesn't listen to their conscience and remember the conscience is something God's given us that kind of shows us when we're doing wrong and we feel guilt because of it. The conscience is, you know, is inflamed by that. Now, every time we say disregard what our conscience is saying, not to do something, we sear the conscience and we become numb to it. And that increases our ability to sin without remorse, without guilt. I want to do it because I like to do it. I love my sin. See, that's saying no to the conscience. And remember, when God does judge, he's not only going to judge by what we've done with creation, but what we've done with our conscience and what we have done with the Scripture and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, God is going to judge by what he's put out there already to give people light to bring them to himself and to show them who he is of course, and then thirdly, that we are in bondage to sin and Satan. Now, the classic passage of Scripture that everyone uses is the John chapter 8, verse 44. And what does it say there? Remember, a bunch of Jews were saying, we're children of Abraham, right? And God, Jesus says, no, you're not children of Abraham. You actually have another father. Your father is Satan. And this is what he says to them. You, have your, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in, in him. 
Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So all of us, before we come to Christ in our deadness, we have a father, and that, the, our father is, is Satan before Christ. When we come to Christ, we have a new father, a heavenly father, a father now we can come to because of, based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and come into his presence. So we have a new father uh, when we come to Christ. But before that, you do have a father, and he's leading you, and he's directing you, and he's ensnaring you, and he's keeping you where he wants to keep you. Now, if you're in the Bible, look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 10. Again, this bondage to sin and Satan comes out where it says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 10. Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture because the gospel, the 1 John is really giving us the framework and the groundwork on what it means to be a real believer, right? And he says this. In John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So here's something very obvious, all right? How do you know whether somebody's a child of God or whether somebody's a child of Satan? By, you notice what it says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. All right, so really, where does it come out? Whether you're a child of the devil or a child of God, it comes out in your life. It comes out because when you come to Christ and he transforms your heart and he gives you new life and he resurrects you uh, from your dead state and he puts his spirit in you, then now you can actually practice righteousness. Not perfectly, but you practice righteousness. And when you do that, you begin to not only love God, but you begin to love people in a way that you never could before. And then again in John chapter 8, you need to, uh, it says in John 8, it says in verse 34, and Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So see, man is in bondage to sin and he is in bondage to Satan. And you know what? They don't even know it. Because Satan is so slick and he is such a, military genius that as a commander of his demonic troops one of the most important thing for any leader or special leader of troops is make sure the best thing you could do is make sure you're not even there don't even let them know you're there and don't let them know what you're doing don't ever let them know your strategy in fact there's only one place that we can find out the strategy of Satan. Only one place in the whole world. Right here. In the word of God is the only place we can find out what Satan's up to. And how he wants to blind people to the gospel. He wants to keep you from becoming spiritually resurrected uh, to, in salvation. He wants to keep you from the truth. He wants to keep you from any light God possibly may put in your path and as the father draws you he wants to keep you where you're at because he has you he has people who are fallen and then also fourthly there's universal bondage everywhere you go there is universal bondage 
Second Chronicles, you don't need to turn there uh, to these passages. I'll just share them with you. Second Chronicles 6, verse 36, if you're taking notes. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. Psalm 142, verse 143, verse 2. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no li- man living is righteous. In Proverbs 20, 20, uh, 20, verse number 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart and I am pure from sin? Who could say that? Nobody could say that. And then Ecclesiastes, great book, verse number 20, indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. And then, of course, the classic Isaiah 53, verse number 6, all of us, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And, of course, the first John passage of Scripture, if we say that we have no sin, what does it say? We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar And his word is not in us. So there is universal bondage to sin no matter where you go. And the Bible clearly brings that out. But there's one last thing, and that's man's inability to change. Man is radically corrupt, and he cannot change. You don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to decide to follow Jesus today and live for him with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's not the way it happens. The gospel has to come to you first. The tiger has to be let out of the cage first, the gospel. And when it is, and when you're confronted with the gospel, maybe over and over and over again, and then you begin to see yourself as God sees you, a sinner under his judgment, deserving hell and deserving what wrath and the effects of wrath may produce in someone's life who rejects Christ and when you see yourself there and you realize I can't save myself there's nothing I can do to save myself see that's when the cross gets magnified that's when the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes something where you desire to have it because the father begins to draw someone to himself And when he draws them to himself by the truth, he begins to give you that truth. And then once you begin to uh, think about that truth and he gives you new life and you come to know him uh, as your Lord and Savior, everything changes, everything changes. Jeremiah tells us this, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Neither can you, can you do good who are accustomed to do, doing evil. John 14, who can make the clean? Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Romans, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. And then Matthew, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles are they so every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor can a bad tree produce good fruit 
See, in other words, we are totally depraved. We are radically corrupt. And that means because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. Who does he need? He needs the power of Christ. In other words, he needs the spirit of God to regenerate him. That's what he needs. See, that's what he needs. One last passage, and then I'm going to close this morning, and that's John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. And it says this in verse number 44. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, see, it is the Father who's going to draw someone into the message of the gospel and then what the Father does is now brings the Spirit of God into And to do his work, and as the Spirit of God comes and does his work, he convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And then what happens is that we believe the gospel because God enters in and makes us alive. He quickens us, and we then can be born again, as it says in John 3. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So... Spiritual resurrection, another way of saying that, or regeneration, or the Spirit of God making you alive is being born again. You have to be born again into God's family, and the Spirit of God can do that. We have no ability in and of ourselves to do it on our own. We need God to do it. And that's what it means to, uh, when we think about the, the doctrine of radical corruption. But it leads to a second point, which I'll bring up next time, and that's the point of unconditional election, right? And that's what we'll look at uh, next time I'm uh, on this topic, which should should be next week. Let's pray, though. Lord, this morning I, I ask you that you would take these truths and these scriptures, and I pray, Lord, that you would use them in the heart of people in such a way that, Lord, we can understand that Regeneration really precedes faith. And Lord, that as the scripture tells us that even we were dead in our transgressions, you made us alive together with Christ. It is you, Lord, who must enter in by your spirit. It is you, Lord, who must convict us of sin. It's you, Lord, that must give us life so we can respond to the message of the gospel. For we know, Lord, the the flesh sets his mind on things of the flesh and the flesh is hostile towards God it's, it does not subject itself to the law of God neither is it able to do so and so Lord I pray that you would use the word of God to bring men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and I pray Lord that you would excite your church to the truths of the doctrines of grace to know that these are biblical doctrines. They are doctrines that rise up from 
the word of God and they are doctrines that are held by a long line of individuals that have gone before us and were faithful to you and faithful to your word. I pray that we would continue to be faithful in these days uh, to these truths for, Lord, as we preach them, that you would bring people to a saving knowledge of yourself and regenerate them and, Lord, make them faithful Christians who persevere to the end. So, Lord, enable us today to begin to think about these things and believe them, talk with them, being able to even uh, tell and teach others what they are so we can be firmly established in these important doctrines of faith. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.